Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I read this little article about how that the Alaska Department of Fish and Game uh, informs us that all reindeer will grow their antlers in the summertime, male and female. They'll grow antlers in the summertime. Male reindeer, however, will drop their antlers uh, just before the winter, uh, mid-November to early December. Male antlers on reindeer will drop. Uh, the female will keep their antlers throughout the winter time, and. Uh, they won't drop them until the spring when they give birth. Well, that sheds a whole new light, according to this article, on the whole Santa and his reindeer. That means that all of Santa's reindeer, from Rudolph to Blitzen, were all female. And uh, what I read says that makes perfect sense. Only women, while pregnant, would be able to drag a fat man in a red velvet suit all around the world in one night and not get lost. Now that opening story sort of focuses on one of the problems that we face this time of the year, and that is the fact that there's so much fiction built into the Christmas story. Santa Claus, talking snowmen, flying reindeer, and we've added in the Christian church some of our own fiction, haven't we, through the songs that have been written. Like we have said there's three uh, kings... In fact, the Bible doesn't say there are three. We've even added a little drummer boy at the birth of Christ. All because of the hymnal theology that comes with it. And so, what the sincere onlooker does is sees through that maze of myth and says, Well, there's so much myth at Christmas. We know that Santa is mythical, but perhaps the baby in the manger is also mythical. So can't we just get past all of the myth And can't we just say happy holidays and have a little fun? Oh, by the way, a a new poll this week revealed that 77% of Americans don't want to say happy holidays. They want to say Merry Christmas. But there are some issues. When was Jesus born? Does December 25th appear in ancient times and is it rooted in paganism? And what about Santa Claus? And what about a tree? And what about the giving of gifts? And all of that can be summed up by one question that is the title of this message, Is it okay to celebrate Christmas? By the way, this week, that is the number one question on the website, gotquestions.org. Is it okay to celebrate Christmas? I grew up loving Christmas. It was the best day of the year. I couldn't wait for Christmas. I loved it all. I loved the smell of pine trees, even though we would get a fake tree and flock it and all that nonsense. And I loved the lights and I loved all of it. Even Perry Como music. My parents played it every year. I got into it. But I became a Christian and I started reading some things that were alarming to me. For example, Did you know that our Puritan forefathers refused to celebrate Christmas? Because of all the paganism they said was attached to it. The pagan ritual diminished the meaning of Christmas, so they refused to celebrate it. And their biggest beef 
was that since Christmas typically falls uh, during the week and not on the weekend, simply by, by virtue of mathematics, that they would detract from people keeping the Lord's Day. And because of that competition of people keeping the Lord's Day Sunday, they didn't want to celebrate it. And also, there was a law in the 17th century that was passed outlawing the celebration of Christmas. Can you imagine making it against the law? The marketplace was ordered to stay open for business. You couldn't close your business on Christmas. Um, If you did, you could be prosecuted by law. It's as if Ebenezer Scrooge ran the whole thing. In fact, it was illegal to make plum pudding on December 25th. The Puritans did not refer to it as everyone else did, Yuletide. Their own chiding name was Fooltide for Christmas. Now, I'm going to suggest a different approach. Rather than being reactive, that we as Christians become proactive and redemptive in the approach. Rather than getting all Santa claustrophobic about it, rather than making bah humbug our mantra, that we take the tradition and we apply some redemption to the tradition and some innovation as well and make some of our own. I'm going to ask you to begin with me in Matthew chapter 2. You probably knew that we couldn't get past the Christmas season without at least looking at Matthew or Luke. Matthew chapter 2. In verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, a better word is agitated, and all of Jerusalem with him. Whenever Herod wasn't happy, no one else was happy. And when he had gathered all of the chief priests and scribes of the people together, these are the religious rulers, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. A familiar story. A group, an entourage, I don't believe there were three. I think there was a huge entourage of what are called the Magoi. Uh, Medo-Persians who take a five hundred mile journey from ancient Iran all the way to Jerusalem. And why are they there? They're there to celebrate a birthday, a special celebration. So they come quite innocently expecting everybody to be on the same page saying, well, well, where is he? Where's who? Well, the one who is to be born king of the Jews. But they discover that not everybody in Jerusalem is willing to celebrate the birth of this child like they have come to celebrate on that time. And partly because, I submit, because of the tradition 
that had developed around them. There were two different groups in the story. There's not just the wise men, but there's the group of religious leaders. And they had their own tradition. Unfortunately, it was the tradition of know the Bible, read the Bible, quote the Bible, but never do what the Bible says. So they could quote immediately Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Oh, we know exactly where he's to be born. Bethlehem, that's four to five miles away. You could easily get on a horse and go see if it even happened. And they didn't do that. So they had this crusty tradition. By the way, they were subsidized by the government. So what did they care? They just got the paycheck coming in, spouted off the scripture and went about their business. And the tradition that developed around Herod in his court was one of protectionism. They only saw this, perhaps, king of the Jews as competition. That's what Herod called himself, the king of the Jews. He wanted nothing to do with it. And you know the rest of the story of what happened. So, beginning here, let's do three things. Let's look back at some traditions. Let's look to the present at a solution to some of those traditions. And then let's look to the future and allow me to give you a challenge toward innovation of what could be done beyond this. We begin then with the dilemma, and the dilemma is tradition. Now, tradition can be good, and tradition can be bad. I discovered 14 times the New Testament uses the word tradition, and sometimes it uses it in a good way, and sometimes it uses it in a bad way. Matthew 15 is a bad way. Jesus confronts the religious leaders and he says, why is it that you by your tradition have obscured the word of God? But three times in the New Testament, Paul, once to the Corinthians, twice to the Thessalonians, says, hold on to, hold fast to the traditions that I have delivered down to you. Some are good, some are bad. Now, how many of you remember the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Anybody remember that movie from 1971? And the, the, uh, the, the key guy in it was a guy by the name of Tevye, the father, the, the dairyman, very poor family in nine, 1905 Russia. And this Jewish father, I think one of the first songs in the movie is Tradition. And he goes, Tradition. And he wants to tell you about tradition and how important tradition was in binding the Jewish people together to preserve them through the ages. Remember that? And it was true. It did that. But sometimes tradition can obscure truth. Not always, but sometimes it can. Sometimes you have to sort of look through what parts are true and what what parts are not. Well, part of the tradition of these scribes and leaders that are working for Herod, they are Jewish, they know the scripture. But part of the tradition they grew up with was believing that the Messiah, when he comes, will be a politician, a political leader. Not a redeemer from sin, certainly not God in human flesh, but somebody who will politically deliver them from the oppression they have known for years by foreign rulers. And then Jesus comes on the scene And blows that out of the water. Well, we have some of our own traditions, don't we? And the most obvious one coming on the radar screen this week is December 25th, what we call Christmas. Now, was Jesus born on December 25th? I got to give you the answer right away just to sort of settle it. Nobody knows when he was born. Nobody knows exactly when Jesus was born 
But the consensus of responsible scholarship will almost always say he certainly was not born on December 25th, or at least most probably was not born. And one of the reasons is found in the scripture itself. Shepherds were out in the fields watching their flocks by night. They didn't do that past October. And so some give him a fall birthday. That is, unless it was an El Nino year, I suppose, and was unusually warm. But given those circumstances, it didn't happen. The earliest dating that we have of the birth of Jesus comes from Clement of Alexandria, who fixed the birth of Christ on May 20th. Now, doesn't that just sort of ruin it for you? I mean, you imagine setting up a tree in May and giving gifts in May. May 20th. Others argued that it was in April, April 18th. Some said April 19th. There's even a date in history floating around March the 28th. Those are the four big early dates. And so you can see the majority of opinion and even scholarship is that it was in the spring of the year, not the winter. It wasn't until the third century AD that Hippolytus of Rome fixed the birthday of Christ at December the 25th. And why did he do that? Well, according to the records, he somehow figured that Jesus was conceived in the womb on March the 25th. Now, how he did that, we don't know. He just probably pulled it out of the sky and said he was born or conceived in the womb on March 25th. And he counted exactly nine months and came to December 25th as the birthday. But... If we dig a little bit deeper, we understand that actually he probably said that because there was another very popular festival going on in Rome at that time. In fact, something that had been going on for generations, all the way back to the Babylonian times that worked its way throughout history in many different people groups and ended up being celebrated in Rome. Let me give you a thumbnail sketch of what that was. You can go all the way back to a guy in Genesis 10 named Nimrod. How many of you ever heard of Nimrod? Okay, Nimrod, Genesis chapter 10. He's the guy that founded the town of Babel. Babel, which became Babylon. According to the records, Nimrod married a beautiful woman by the name of Semiramis. Semiramis was called the Queen of Heaven. Um, Her husband... Uh, was away from home and he died. So she was left uh, childless and she was left uh, as a widow. Sometime later, after her husband Nimrod's death, she ends up pregnant. And her explanation is that it was a miraculous conception, a miraculous pregnancy. That she wasn't conceived by any normal human means, but she encountered a flash of light and it was that flash of light that impregnated her. And she gave birth to a son. She named the son Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z. Tammuz, her son, she said, was the reincarnation of her husband Nimrod. And she said, and they said, that Tammuz was the sun god. And one of the reasons, if you know archaeology in the Middle East, you see those clay ziggurats, those towers that dot the landscape in Persia and the Middle East, is all of that was tied to their worship of the sun and the zodiac and tied into the worship of Tammuz, the sun god. Now, her, her conception was celebrated in Babylonia. And it was celebrated in the spring of the year under the title Ishtar. 
Ishtar. If you go to Babylon today, which I have, there's even a gate they've uncovered called the Ishtar Gate. It's a gate entrance city to, uh, of the city of Babylon that celebrates the conception of uh, Semiramis uh, with Tammuz, her son, to be born later. And the way that was celebrated in Babylon is they gave Ishtar eggs to one another. Easter eggs is the anglicized form. Little eggs, colored eggs, because an egg was the symbol of fertility. And they also gave bunnies to one another, little pets, because, well, you know what bunnies do. It's also a symbol of fertility. (laughs) Well, Tammuz was born. And according to the records, it corresponds with our date, December 25th. Tammuz was born December 25th. And it was a perfect time because the solstice, the winter solstice had passed. The days were getting longer and longer. And it was very convenient for those who worshipped the sun. Now, guess how they celebrated December 25th, the birth of Tammuz, the reincarnation of Nimrod. They did it by putting a piece of wood, a log, into the fire. They called it in Chaldean. The Babylonian Chaldean word was Yule log which is a Chaldean word for infant. They put the infant log into the fire on the 24th of December, Mother Night it was called. And um, it was to symbolize the dead stock of Nimrod that was perishing. And the next day, an evergreen tree was placed inside of the house to symbolize the reincarnation of Nimrod back to life through the sun, Tammuz. Now, did you know that that's even mentioned, hinted at at least, in the Bible? Turn with me to uh, Jeremiah chapter 10, the 10th chapter of Jeremiah. And here, God is rebuking his own people, the nation of Israel, because they were copying some of the ways of these people. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 1. And before you get all worried about this, just remember when you came in today, you saw a Christmas tree in our foyer. So you know that I'm not going to like drop that one on you. Verse 1, hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles or the peoples, Hagoyim. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of a workman with the axe, They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. Now that whole Babylonian thing that happened with Tammuz, Nimrod, uh, circulated through many cultures because one nation conquered another nation, conquered another nation. A lot of that got assimilated. So that by by the time of the Roman Empire, New Testament times, there were two festivals that were celebrated. One was called Saturnalia, big festival in Rome. On December the 17th through the 24th was the festival of Saturnalia, which was known as the Feast of the Unconquered Sun. And then on the next day, December 25th, celebrated Brumalia. Brumalia was the festival of the Invincible Sun. Because again, now after the solstice has passed, a few days after, their days are getting longer and longer and longer. And a festival in Rome was kept, much like the Babylonian festival. Now, the Romans celebrated Saturnalia and Brumalia by drinking, partying, and giving gifts to one another. 
So you can see how a lot of history, a lot of tradition has crept in, goes way, way back. And then there's the whole Santa Claus fiasco. You know, fat man in a red suit that gives gifts to everybody on Christmas Eve. Now, we see that every year. And as believers, we get a little put off by it. And because we realize Christmas has become so commercialized, we will agree in principle with our Puritan forebears and say, yeah, I I can relate. It bothers me every time I see people making it all about Santa or about buying something. Did you know that this year uh, we will use in our country 28,500,000 rolls and sheets of wrapping paper? That's consumerism. We will use 17 million packages of bows and tags for gifts. And we will cut down 35,200,000 trees and put them in our homes. Well, I guess that's enough to make anybody say bah humbug. There's even a website I found called bah humbug I hate Christmas. I think it's dot com. So those are the traditions, and that is the dilemma. What is the solution? I suggest the solution is redemption, and I want to explain it. I know about the past traditions. I have studied them. I know the origin of most of these things, as I shared in brief. But you know what? Most people growing up in this country, generation after generation, don't know that. And they don't worship Babylonian gods and goddesses. And it's not really about that. It might be about other things, granted, commercialism, granted, Santa perhaps, but they're not usually, at least cognizantly, worshiping Babylonian deities. In fact, I'll take it a step further. Most people don't know the origin of most things. You know, I've had people come up to me and say, well, you shouldn't worship on Sunday. You need to worship on Saturday, the Sabbath. Because Sunday is when the pagans used to worship the sun god, hence the term Sunday. And I'll say, you're right, but you can't worship on Saturday because that's Saturn's day. That's when Saturn was worshipped. And you can't make it Monday because that's moon day. That's when the moon was worshipped by the ancient pagans. And you might as well write January off altogether because that comes from the god Janus, the Roman god of gates and entrances, and that birthed the entrance to the new year. And you can't do anything in March because that's when people worship Mars, the god of war. On and on and on. You see where I'm going with this. Most people don't know the origin of most things and don't attach any significance to it. So, what are we to do about Christmas and December 25th and trees and Santa Claus? I'm going to suggest that we do what Jesus did. When Jesus was faced with a celebration of a festival that had a lot of tradition that was attached to it, some of which may have been true, some of which may have not been true. Now, the one I'm referring to is in John chapter 10. In fact, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 10 with me. John chapter 10. I don't have time for lots of backdrop. Let's just look at a few verses that are speaking to what we're dealing with. John 10, verse 22. Now watch this. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. In fact, it's 
is right about this exact time today in Jerusalem at the time. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And he goes on, the real highlight is verse 30, I and my Father are one. Now, it says it was the Feast of Dedication, also known as the Festival of Lights, also known as Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah was one of the festivals that was a non-biblical festival. What do I mean? You will never find it anywhere in the Old Testament. God told him to keep Passover. God told him to keep Pentecost. God told him to keep Tabernacles. He said nothing about Hanukkah because it didn't exist when he said it. It comes between the New Testament and the Old Testament. 165 B.C., an event happened that caused a celebration, and that celebration is what Jesus was in the temple celebrating in the wintertime of John chapter 10. Let me tell you about the event. 165 B.C. There was this guy who lived up in Syria, a real creep, Creepo Maximo, called Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, one of the Seleucid kings, or the Syrian kings. He hated Jews. He hated them with a passion. And he came and invaded Israel, comes to Jerusalem, kills 80,000 Jews in one attack. Kills them. Takes 40 or 50,000 of them captive as slaves, Destroys the temple, um, takes a pig, and slaughters it on the altar of sacrifice. The most unkosher thing you could ever do. Takes the intestines of the pig, the blood of the pig, smears it all over the holy things, defiling everything in the temple. Uh, commands the people not to worship Yahweh, but to worship Zeus. Puts up a statue of Zeus in the temple and says, here's the God you worship now, worship Zeus. He commands the Sabbath day to not be celebrated. He commands the Jewish festivals not to be celebrated. He commands circumcision not to be done. And now they're under a tyrannical rule of this idiot from Syria. Well, as time went on, a group of priests down south, in a little village called Modin, Hajmonean priests, by the name of the Maccabees. Anybody hear of the Maccabean revolt, the Maccabees? Okay, this group got together and said, forget this. we got to rebel against this dude. And they, they, they created a huge rebellion that drove the Syrians back home and allowed them to take control of their temple again. So they cleansed the temple. When they cleansed the temple and they were lighting the menorah, that seven-branch candlestick in the holy place, they discovered that they had a limited supply of oil. In fact, they only had one day, one flagon of oil that would last one day. It would take eight days for fresh oil to come from Tekoa, where it was harvested, and get to the temple. They didn't have the time. They dedicated the temple. They lit the menorah. But according to legend, the menorah burned for eight days, even though they didn't have the oil for it. It miraculously burned. That's why when you see today a, a, a candelabra for Hanukkah, there's nine candles on it. The lead candle lighting eight of the days celebrating that. Question. Did that really happen? Well, yeah, the Maccabean revolt happened and the cleansing of the temple and the lighting of the menorah happened. But the miraculous burning of the candle for eight days, did it really happen? We don't know. 
Honestly, we don't know if that happened or not. A lot of that is lost to legend. But notice, Jesus is in Jerusalem at this festival of Hanukkah, and he uses the festival of lights to shine the light on who he is. And I suggest that's what we do with Christmas. Oh, you can say bah humbug. You can get Santa claustrophobic. You can run from it all. Or, like Jesus, you can use the festival to shine light on who he is. I think, I think we can redeem this tradition, if you will. You know what amazes me? Is I walk through the mall, you do too, or the stores, and you hear songs being played, and I hear people humming them or even singing the words. They're singing and listening to words that we preach in evangelical churches, and it's only found in churches, and they're singing them. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to... They're singing it. Now they may not be cognizant of what they're saying, but some of them are. But that's where we come in. We can shine the light on them. We can redeem it. I think there are other examples of this, not just what Jesus did in John 10. I think Martin Luther did that. He did it with the Christmas tree. Martin Luther was the first guy to put a Christmas tree inside the home. And let me tell you what happened. There were public trees during the wintertime in Germany known as the Paradise Tree that commemorated Adam and Eve. It was the festival of Adam and Eve. But they were outside. They were public. Little wafers were hung on them. Inside the homes at that time were wooden triangles that people kept, symbolizing the Trinity. Little shelves were built on the wooden triangles. A star was put on it. Figurines were put on it. Martin Luther seems to have merged the two into one. Taking a tree, putting it inside the house, putting candles on it, bringing children around the tree... Quoting Isaiah 60, verse 13, that speaks about the box tree and the cypress tree and the fir tree, all rejoicing in the Lord. And brought the children around the tree and had them look at the candles and says, Children, you know what this is to speak of? That without the light of Jesus Christ, this world would forever live in darkness. And he took that tree idea and he redeemed it. And I would even say the choice of December 25th, You know, everybody goes, well, the church just caved in to a pagan holiday. I think there's enough literature in the records that would say they didn't do it to capitulate to the world. They did it to counter the world. They were saying, we're not going to celebrate Saturnalia anymore because that's false. We're going to celebrate the birth of Christ. So rather than endorsing a pagan ceremony, they were establishing a rival celebration. Now, you might say, well, since we don't really know the birthday of Jesus Christ, like the Puritans, we shouldn't celebrate it at all. I think that's a weak and lame argument, and here's why. If you were to adopt a child from overseas, from some country, you go to that country and you are there to adopt a child, but they say to you, uh, Mr. So-and-so, Ms. So-and-so, we have lost the birth papers. We don't know the exact day this child was born. Now, are you going to take that child home? and forever not celebrate his or her birthday? 
Well, you know, we just don't know when you were born, so we're not going to ever celebrate your... You're going to pick one. You're going to pull one out of the hat and you're going to say, we're going to celebrate your birthday, your coming into the world on that day. So does it matter if it was May 20th? No. April 18th, 19th, March 28th, December 25th? Does it matter when he came? No, it matters that he came. And the celebration is already ongoing and I say, let's redeem it. Somebody's going to say, yeah, but you know, it's that Santa thing that just bugs me. Santa Claus is so ho, ho, horrendous. So I just, oh, I can't deal with it. He's ruined Christmas. Well, not so fast. I mean, yes and no. No, there's no fat man living at the North Pole with overachieving elves around him. But did you know that there really was a St. Nicholas? And let me tell you his story. Nicholas of Myra, he was called. He was a church leader. He was a pastor. He was a bishop of Myra, which is the country of Lycia, ancient Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. It was in the 4th century A.D., and Nicholas had a reputation for benevolence. He loaded up his wagon, not his sleigh, his wagon, with food and fuel to give to the poor. He did it regularly. And there's all sorts of stories about him. In fact... Did you know that Nicholas of Myra was one of the men present at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and he vigorously defended the belief in the Trinity which Arius the heretic denied. Nicholas was on the right side. So, after Nicholas, because he made such an impression in that region, every year it became a custom in many of the countries to give gifts on his feast day. He was a bishop. Now, the Dutch are the ones that gave us the red suit and the white fur. And they took the idea of Nicholas being a bishop, and they added the motif of a bishop's mitre and cape and came up with that suit. It sort of morphed over time. Uh, the Dutch referred to St. Nicholas in their language as St. Nicholas, and they contracted it into Sinter Klaus. Sinterklaus, Santa Claus, all St. Nicholas. So, okay, you can just like write it all off. Or you can say, kids, I want to tell you about the real St. Nicholas and who he was and what he did and what he believed in. Because you know what? The world is out there saying, really crying out for, wouldn't it be great if there really was a jolly guy, happy guy who was loving and giving? There is. It's Jesus. It's the one that Nicholas loved and worshipped and served. It was Jesus Christ. And by the way, by the way, Jesus is so much better than Santa. I mean, you know what Santa does. He makes a list and he checks it twice to see if you're naughty or nice. I don't want that. I like what Jesus did. He takes the list, and you know what he does with the list? Nails it to the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. He canceled the record that contained the charges against us, and he took it and destroyed it by nailing it to the cross. So you see, you can be either reactive, won't keep it, won't celebrate it, it's attached to so much paganism, or you can be 
redemptive. You can pull out the myth from the truth and tell people at this time of the year when their senses are already heightened to it, the rest of the story. Now, I'm going to give you a quote that I think is a reactive quote. It's a Puritan quote. Don't don't misunderstand me. I love the Puritans. I love to read them. I'm inspired by them. I agree with so much of what they have said, but I depart from them in this. And they said, here's the quote, We do not believe in the present ecclesiastical arrangement called Christmas. First, because we do not believe in the Mass at all. Christ Mass, the celebration of the Mass, was abhorrent to the Puritans. We abhor it. Second, because we find no scriptural warrant for observing any day as the birthday of the Savior. Consequently, its observance is a superstition. Understand, but it's reactive. Or... You can see it as an opportunity. And you can invite the neighbors over or go to the neighbor's house and figure out some way to shine the light onto Jesus Christ, who is the light. Let me give you a final challenge as we close. Let's move from tradition and redemption to innovation. Hey, why not come up with a few new traditions? After all, a tradition was started by somebody. And passed on to the next, to the next, to the next. Why not start a few of your own? Why, why bow to just the traditions that have been passed down by everybody else? I love what Jim Dobson said. Many have forgotten the value of characteristics and activities which identify the family as unique and different. They are called traditions. Now, in closing, let me suggest a few things. You can throw them all out and come up with new ones, or you may want to use one or two. How about making ornaments at Christmas that mark your spiritual journey through life? Example, let's say you're newly married. This is your first tree. You get a little picture of your wedding, and it's you and your wedding party at the church where you were married. Maybe you have your first child, and you take a picture of the day your child was prayed for, dedicated in church. Maybe somebody in your family gets saved. You put a picture of them up, and you pray for that spiritual journey they're taking. And let that tree mark the spiritual legacy of your family. Another thing is something you already do. And that is adopt someone at Christmas time to help. Thousands of you do it already with Operation Christmas Child. You put toys in a box, it gets sent overseas. Others of you do it with the caring tree that we have in Solomon's porch. And you help some of the older folks in the community. And people see the love of Christ. A tradition that was started in my family, and I wish I could say I invented it, but I'm not that smart. My wife comes up with all the great ideas. We did it since Nathan was young. We'd take a a brown paper bag, beat up old bag. The more beat up, the better. Little bag, lunch sack. And we write on the lunch sack on Christmas Eve things we're asking forgiveness for, things we need God to change in our lives. We'd write it out for everybody to see, and we put it on the fireplace. And then early in the morning, I'd get up before Nathan would get up, and he'd change the brown paper bags to shiny gift bags with goodies inside, all symbolic of how God takes the old and changes us into new creatures. This has been one of our traditions. Here's another thought. Why not, uh, around Christmas time, drive through a a poor or raunchy or dangerous, you can keep your windows up, neighborhood, (laughs) and pray for everybody you see. And if you don't see anybody out because it's cold, just pray for all of the houses on that street. Work your way through. The, they're going to think you're casing their house, but you're just you're, you're praying for each house as you go. 
How about this? Write a letter of reconciliation and forgiveness for those you've wronged. Now, if you start doing that as a tradition, you'll run out of people to write to eventually. That's the beautiful thing. Another thing that some like to do, I love it, is to carol in the neighborhood. Get a group of believers together, knock on the neighbor's doors and just say, Hey, do you mind? We'd like to sing songs about our Savior. And then just launch into a song. Because they're familiar with them. Those are Christmas carols. And sing to them. And if you get a good group of beautiful singers, uh, they're going to ask for a second song. They won't shut the door on you. So I, I agree. It is true. The meaning of Christmas has been lost in our culture. It has become commercialized. It has been reinterpreted. All I'm saying is instead of letting it be reinterpreted and complaining about it every year, let's just step into it all and reinterpret it the right way. Interpret it for them. Tell them the rest of the story. There was a woman who had a circle of friends. It was getting near Christmas and she wanted to buy them all presents. But she worked all day. She ran out of time. She didn't have time to buy them gifts. So she thought, well, I, I can't buy him a gift this year. I'll send him a card instead of a gift. So she just went to the store, bought one of those pack of 50 cards. It, she liked what it looked like on the front. It was shiny and gold and had holly on it. She said, that'll be great. Didn't even read what it said inside. Bought 50 cards, wrote something on it, signed her name, sent it out. Well, about New Year's, when she did have the time, she looked at the message that was in the card that she had sent. And she was shocked. It read, This Christmas card is just to say, A little gift is on the way. <laughs> Get it? Be careful how you celebrate Christmas. Make sure you're getting the right message across. And this is the week to do it. This is the time to do it. Let's utilize it for His glory. Heavenly Father, we pray that we, your people, would be redemptive ones. Ones who use this to bring others to Jesus and have them look at the tree and consider some of the background with it, with Martin Luther and, and what Jesus did in the temple. And even a guy named Nicholas who was benevolent because he loved Jesus and he stood up for what was true and right and it made an impact on the people around him. We thank you, Lord, for those wonderful pieces of history that weave into the story that began that first night, whenever it was, that Jesus came into this world. Because this has been marked off as the day for that celebration, we want to celebrate it with everything that is in us. So thankful that at the right time in history, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem us. And that's where our focus lies. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.